I'm here with Cindy Gallup, and we're going to talk about her company, Make Love Not Porn. And uh, my podcast starts out with the same question every time, and it's, what was your dream as a child? Gosh, um, my dream as a kid was, uh, I'm not really sure, actually. Um, I don't think I really had one. Really? Yeah, really. Nothing? No. You were in theatre. I read that you did a little bit of theatre, right? When you started um, I, um, I started out my career working in theatre, yes. Mm-hmm. So how did you get into advertising? Um, so I, um, I fell in love with theatre at Oxford University, um, where I read English literature. Um, Oxford has a very thriving student drama scene, and I you know, did everything, wrote, actor, directed, stage, managed, and decided all I wanted to do was work in theatre for the rest of my life. Um, but I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or director, um, but I used to draw a lot when I was younger, and so I got pulled by my friends at Oxford into designing theatre posters for their shows and then um, actually promoting their shows, and I quite enjoyed that. So I became a marketing and publicity officer, um, and I worked at several theatres in the UK for several years, and I eventually got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, And at the time, I was working at the Everman Theatre in Liverpool, and part of my job promoting the theatre was giving talks to groups about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women, and afterwards, one of them came up to me and said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. So I did. And back to working 24-7 hours in advertising. That kind of built up your stamina for Well, back to working 24-7 for a great deal more money. Right, true. And bringing stories back to life. You know, theatre and advertising are full of storytelling. Well, um, well, my theatre skills were eminently transferable because advertising is a very theatrical profession. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's very theatrical. So at BBH, you helped launch their Singapore office. And Singapore is the most multi-ethnic country with four national languages, Chinese, Indian, Malay, and English. What was the biggest challenge about launching that office? BBH Asia Pacific was based in Singapore, but we operated as a regional um, agency. And so we were looking for business and ran accounts in every country in Asia, actually. I mean, I guess um, 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 the biggest challenge probably was that Asia Pacific is such a wide region that um, business development had to range across every country and we had to go looking for clients and brands in every country. And so, um, and so it was a lot of ground to cover. That's probably the biggest challenge, apart from all the other usual ones about starting an agency anywhere. Wow, and there's a lot of ground to cover. So what advice do you have for people who are expanding their business into other countries, especially when there's a lot of ground to cover and you're a startup and you're looking for funding and you're trying to bring in new clients? Um, I think um, really um, the most important thing that is very important in business generally, which is really work to understand and respect and empathize with the cultures and the marketplaces you're dealing with. Always be learning. Right. Every culture is just so different. There are so many nuances. Even when you go into a business meeting, you know, if you were working in Saudi Arabia, you can't just go right into business. You have to sit down, you have to have some tea. Uh, Well, you certainly can't if you're a woman, no. Oh, you certainly can't when you're a woman, right? Uh, Women can't do anything in Saudi Arabia, which is why, um, you know, regrettably, when years ago in London I worked on business to operate in the Middle East, um, the women on the team were not able to go and travel there and do business because it would not have been productive, regrettably. That's a whole entire Uber story I can get into that I want right now because Uber just took a lot of money from Saudi Arabia where women are not even allowed to drive. So, you know, what what rights do we have as a corporation to go in and influence other policies? And, you know, what money do we take? What money do we support? What do we put our money behind? 
Money is a very interesting subject. So, how did you start Make Love Not Porn? You describe it as a con academy. Um, no, 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 actually. Um, I'm trying to raise funding at the moment to expand Make Love Not Porn mm -hmm. to be able to build what I call the Khan Academy of Sex Education, but that, that is not how I describe Make Love Not Porn. Because I was on the website and it looks like there's an infrastructure already there in place. There's some videos uploaded. I mean, uh, um, yes, makelovenotporn.tv has been operating for four years. Yes. So, the question is how did you get into sex? Sure. So, Make Love and Porn is an accident. Um, I never consciously, intentionally set out to do anything. I now find myself doing with it. I date younger men who tend to be men in their 20s. And about 10 or 11 years ago, I began realizing that I was encountering, through dating younger men, what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. The convergence of both of those factors results in porn becoming, by default, the sex education today in not a good way. So um, I decided something about this. Uh, nine years ago, I put up on No Money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that posts the myths of hardcore porn and balances them with reality. So the construct is porn world versus real world. I launched Make Love Not Porn at TED 2009. Um, the response was extraordinary. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. Um, people wrote to me from all around the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay. And I saw an opportunity to something that I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to a huge untapped global social need. So what I decided to do was, I always emphasize that Make Love Not Porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst a whole host of other benefits, people would then bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is purely artificial entertainment. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly and honestly in the public domain, and by that I mean parents to kids, teachers to classrooms, everyone to everyone. And equally importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in your intimate relationships. So I decided, therefore, to take every dynamic that exists in social media and apply them to this one area that no other social network or platform will go in order to socialize sex and to make real-world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So four years ago, my team and I launched the first stage of this vision, makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. Anybody from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real-world sex and we're very clear what we mean by this. We're not porn, we're not amateur, we're building a whole new category on the internet that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather, it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed sexual self-expression and self-identification, which they don't. So social sex videos that make love, not porn, are not about performing for the camera. 
They're just about doing what you do on every other social network, capturing what goes on in the real world as it happens spontaneously in all its funny, messy, glorious, silly, wonderful, beautiful, ridiculous humanness. We curate to make sure of that. We watch every single video to make sure it's real. We don't publish unless it is. And we have a revenue-sharing business model. So part of the sharing economy, like Uber and Airbnb, you pay to rent and stream social sex videos, and then half that income goes to our contributors, or as we like to call them, our Make Love Not Porn stars. Because we would like our Make Love Not Porn stars one day to be as famous and celebrated as YouTube stars, for the same reasons, authenticity, realness, individuality, and we would like them to make just as much money. We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your Make Love Not Porn video could hit a million rentals at $5 per rental and we give you half that income. We are the answer to the economy. So what are some top videos that you have right now? You have a few stars, right? My tiny bootstrapping team and I fight a huge battle every single day to build this business. Essentially because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. This is all pervasive across every area of the business in ways that people outside the sphere don't realize. I can't get funded, I can't get banked, I can't put payments in place. Every text service I want to use, the terms of service always say no adult content. So, um, despite those barriers, we have, in four years, we've built up a membership base of over 400,000 members globally. We have over 200 Make Love Not Porn stars. We've had over 1,500 videos submitted. Um, we've made over $500,000 in revenue, and we've done all of this on only two full-time employees, one of whom is me, unpaid. What an investable and scalable proposition. Our biggest obstacle raising funding is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Because it's never what the person I'm talking to thinks. When you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It is always their fear of what they think other people think, which operates around sex more than any other area. And so um, I and all my fellow sex tech founders all have the same problem. We can't get funded. And it's probably even stranger to have a woman come into a room talking about sex, you know? Um, it's something I never think about, too. Um, no, um, I mean, it's not strange at all, obviously. Um, but the issue is fear of what other people will think. too if like one person invests then everybody else invests and you just need that one investor to sign Absolutely. up and then everybody is completely okay with the idea which i find to be absolutely uninnovative <laughs> right the whole entire business about being innovative but then if the same people are investing in the same companies and the same boy club and the same group of people then it stops being innovation and that's why we need more female vcs to invest in each other and support each other's projects and um, create new models of innovation, um, like starting a sexual revolution. So for people who haven't gone on the website yet, who haven't checked it out, uh, who are curious, what can they expect? Like, can you describe some videos that people really love to go to, some of the um, stars? Sure. I mean, so um, the thing about um, social sex is, so porn is purely and simply masturbation material. That's all it is. We are not just that. I mean, we are that too, very happy to be that. But we are so many more things. So for example, real world sex is enormously reassuring because we celebrate real world everything. Real world bodies, real world hair, real world penis size, real world breast size. It is wonderful to see people, you know, who are just, you know, people like you and me having fabulous sex with each other. And by the way, our mantra is, 
everybody is beautiful when they're having real world sex. Then we're also reassuring because we celebrate the accidents, the awkwardness, the messiness. When you learn about sex from porn, it teaches you that sex is a performance. Nothing must go wrong. And we go, if you can't laugh at yourselves when you're having sex, when can you? Then, importantly, we celebrate real-world emotions. We, our videos celebrate real-world love, intimacy, feelings. Um, our members write to us in our Make Love Not Porn Stars, and they say things like, this is, this is a man who wrote and said, the sex in video was incidental. I want what you guys have. I saw the way you looked at each other. I saw the way your eyes met. I hope one day I can meet someone I'll have that with. We get wonderfully moving emails. Um, so, you know, we, we are... Um, it, it really, the, the way to think about what we're doing is... Think about all those celebrations of relationships that crop up on your Facebook timeline every day from your friends. You know, engagement announcements, wedding photos, lovey-dovey couple things. All we're doing is we're providing a platform to celebrate that last era of human relationships nobody else will let you, but the motivations and the social dynamics are exactly the same. So on Facebook, the kind of thing you see from your friends is, for example, we're madly in love. And so here we are on romantic weekend in Paris. You know, here we are kissing in front of the Eiffel Tower, walking hand in hand by the Seine, eating in a bistro, and I'm love, not porn, it's we're madly in love. And here's the great sex we had in our hotel room in Paris that weekend. It's exactly the same deal. I love it. Um, you know, because you have those little intimate moments and you're like, well, I can't really post them, but like, this moment was incredible. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, um, so our Make Love Not Porn stars tell us that socially sharing their real-world sex is as transformative for them and their relationships as socially sharing everything else has been for the world. So we are all-inclusive, obviously, LGBT. We have many solo videos, um, men and women who have filmed themselves masturbating. And, and by the way, you know, a few of our Make Love Not Porn stars have filmed themselves for each other before. The vast majority have never, ever filmed themselves doing anything sexual before. They're doing it for us because they believe in our social mission. So our solo Make Love Not Porn stars tell us that sharing their masturbation videos on Make Love Not Porn made them love themselves more. It enhanced their sexual sense of self, their sexual self-esteem. Couples tell us it transformed their relationship. Because when you decide to film yourselves having sex, you have to talk about it. When you talk about it, it doesn't matter how long you've been together, the conversation goes places it's never, ever gone before. And couples write to us and say, we thought we were open, this just took our relationship to a whole new level. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Have you gone to schools doing this talk? Have you partnered with colleges? I will partner with anybody who will pay me to partner with them. I fight a huge battle every single day. I'm drowning, battling to keep Make Love Not Porn alive in, in, in the face of my failure to find investors. And so I wear 16 hats. And so, you know, I can't um, go cold calling and knocking on doors. I need warm personal introductions, which is what I'm always looking for. It leads to investors, you know, leads to paid partnerships. And you're currently fundraising on ifundwomen.com, which is another really wonderful website that supports women. And uh, they can find your campaign if they go on there. Um, yeah, but I, I should explain. Um, we're working to raise $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn. Um, so, so I'm looking for angel investors. Um, at the same time, um, we have just launched our first crowdfunding campaign. Um, the reason we only just launched it is because historically crowdfunding has not been an option for us. Um, most crowdfunding platforms are either no adult content, which is Kickstarter's policy, or else they draw an artificial distinction between sex toys, fine, people having sex on video, not fine, or they are a new crowdfunding platform. And when I approach them, they suddenly discover they're no adult content after all. 
Um, so the wonderful Karen Khan has launched ifundwomen.com, which is a brilliant crowdfunding platform dedicated to female founders. So we have launched our first crowdfunding campaign on that at the end of last year. But it's going very slowly because, to be frank, um, our bigger issue with crowdfunding is that we don't get the network effect that successful crowdfunding requires. Fear of what other people will think massively inhibits us in this area. So successful crowdfunding requires a very large number of people willing to very publicly rally around something and then very publicly invite their whole network in to do as well. Oh, look, I invested in this, you should too. People will not do that around something to do with sex. We regrettably have to crowdfund one person at a time. You know, people have written to us and said, you know, I just support you and I fund women. I love what you're doing. Please don't publish my name anywhere. And so I would love anybody watching this to go to ifundwomen.com slash project slash make love not porn and please help crowdfund us because um, we, need, we need people to do that because we don't get that sort of ripple network effect like everybody else does, unfortunately. Well, you know what's really interesting? Um, Kickstarter is 70% male projects, and it's mostly 70% supported by men as well. So it's a lot of men investing in other men, but the female-led campaigns do really, really well on Kickstarter because mm. they have bigger networks, and they can tap into um, a community. And um, where men just have money that they can just throw around, and women just have a lot of um, yeah, but, uh, but unfortunately, women have a lot less money. That's true. We have a lot less money, but we have connections. So we have the chance to pull um, well, a actually, lot of people together. Actually, Karen Khan, um, I, I, who is just fantastic, she has put a lot of thought into developing iFundWomen. And one of the things she is acutely conscious of is that crowdfunding platforms favor people who have networks and connections who have money. Mm -hmm. um, she very much wants to help um, women women of color um, who have networks that do not have money. Um, because yes, it's great when you have a middle class network who has the money to put into crowdfunding campaigns. When, when you operate um, within a network where even $5 is a very, very big deal, then you have infinitely more trouble crowdfunding. And so, Karen is really working to use iFundWomen to democratize women's ability to crowdfund at every level of society because the crowdfunding balance is unfairly tipped in favor of those who have the right kind of networks and connections. And it's, the same, it's, uh, it's exactly the same thing when it comes to fundraising. If you don't have the connections, you're not going to be able to raise the money. Um, which brings me to another quote that you have, which says, men are hired and promoted on potential Women are hired and promoted on proof. As women, how do we create more opportunities for ourselves? Okay, so um, the point about, um, when I make that point, I'm not telling women to try and counter that. I'm telling men to change that. So um, the reason men are hired, promoted, and funded on potential, and women are hired, promoted, and funded on proof, and not even then, is because when you have at the top of every industry and the tech world a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys but other white guys, it's very easy for that white male leadership to look at a young man coming up through the ranks, pitching them a startup, and to go, oh, he reminds me of myself at his age. I see myself in him. He's great to have a beer with. Yeah, I reckon he's got the potential to do this. I reckon he's got potential. We should fund this. A woman is held to a completely different set of standards. Well, has she done the job before? 
Has she done the job long enough? Has she done them well enough? You know, has she done this before? You know, show me every single piece of data you possibly can to prove to me that you're starting. And then you don't even get funded then. Mm -hmm. So the answer is not for women to counter an impossible situation in which they cannot win. The answer is for those men in leadership, in VC, to flip that equation. Men, start hiring, promoting, and funding women on potential, and start hiring, promoting, and funding men on proof. We'd see a very different picture immediately. You know, it really brings me back to my first job in advertising. It's all about, advertising is all about access to, if you don't have the money to be able to go to an advertising school, to be able to support yourself while you do the internship, to get your foot in the door, it's really hard. Um, I got my first internship at Goodby Silverstein and Partners in 2001. A great agency. The best agency. I walked up to Jeff Goodby. I gave him this amazing business card. I had Mies Che Guevara on it in 99. I met him at the Andy Awards, and I said, Jeff, I want to be a creative director for you. He goes, okay, bring in your book. Fantastic. Well done. So I walked well into done. the office in Little Heels. He looked at my book. He's like, ah, this is pretty great. You got an internship. Best thing in my life, right? The thing is, the internship paid $10 an hour. Okay. Yeah. So I just went... Oh my God, I can't do this. I can't, I support myself. I can't, mm. I can't take this mm. internship. So I had this amazing chance. What I should have done is gone, Jeff, I need more money. Yeah, no, you should have. You should have. I should have, but I walked out because I didn't know when to speak up. And that could have been a really life-changing thing. Yep. Little things like that. It's a difference between 10 and $15 being able to survive mm. and having your life go in a completely different direction. Absolutely. We have to fund people, everyone. So my final question is, what is your dream as an adult? Oh, I mean, that's very simple. Um, my dream as an adult is to raise the $2 million that I need to scale Make Love Not Porn so that at scale, we can change the way the world has sex for the better. Because our mission, as I said earlier, is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex. Here's how massive, profound, and far-reaching the impact of that would be. I live my own philosophies. I've designed my startup around them. I believe that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question. What are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think that way. Many of us, if we're lucky, are born into families where our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, a sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should because they're empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty are as important as they are in every other area of our lives and our work where we are actively taught to exercise those values. So when we all own our sexuality, accept that we are sexual beings, talk openly and honestly about sex, what that means is that parents will bring their children up to have good sexual values and good sexual behavior, like they bring that have up to have good values and good behavior in every other part of their lives. We will cease to bring up Brock Turner's, the Stanford rapist, we will end rape culture when we inculcate in society a gold standard universally understood, accepted, and lived by of what good sexual values and good sexual behavior are. When we normalize all of this, when we are open and honest and take the shame and embarrassment out of talking about sex, we also end sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual violence, all areas where the perpetrators rely on the shame that we've infused sex with to ensure their victims will never speak up never go to the authorities, never tell anybody. And when we do all that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. So that's my dream as an adult. Uh, I love that dream. Thank you. Cindy, thank you so much.
you so much for being on the show. And uh, I'm fully behind your revolution. Where can they check you out online? If they want to follow right. you on Twitter. Sure. Um, yeah, but you can follow me on Twitter at Cindy Gallup and also at Make Love Not Porn. You can just Google me and you'll see a lot of me. You can find my talks on YouTube. If you Google Make Love Not Porn, The Social Sex Revolution, you'll find a 50-minute documentary about us and what we're doing. Um, and please help crowdfund us at ifundwomen.com. And if you happen to know an open-minded investor who wants to do a huge amount of good and make a huge amount of money, it's cindy at makelovenotporn.tv. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.